this week on the Back Table Podcast. If someone walks into the room with me to this day and they say, hey, do you think we should try this? I will look at the clock. I will set a timer on what I'm doing. And I will say, if this doesn't work in two minutes, I'm going to give that a shot. I used to be the type of person that said, oh, that doesn't work for this reason. And that's wrong. Because then I dismiss their advice, immediately assume that what I know is probably better, even if what I do know is better, and even if what I know is going to work. And it, let's say it even does work. Still, I still sh- I could probably learn from that. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, joined today by Aaron Fritz and Sandeep Bagla. Dr. Bagla is a vascular and interventional radiologist in the D.C. area and president of Prostate Centers. Our topic for today's show is the halo effect in interventional radiology. Dr. Bagla, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Allie. Thanks for having me. And Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I will try not to step on anybody's toes. And I'm going to go with Sonny here on out. That's okay. If that's okay, Dr. Bagla. (laughs) Yeah, it'll make me feel a little more comfortable, (laughs) like I'm at home. Sonny, for those unfamiliar, could you please explain the concept of the halo effect? Yeah, sure. So, um... The halo effect, I think the best way to really describe it is, you know, in human nature, we have this perceived, you know, opinion, if you will, of people once we get one visual cue. So it might be that you see someone who's more attractive or taller, and then we assign certain traits, like they must be funnier or they're smarter or they're more successful. And those things that we assign to that person or individual then really influence the way that we interact influence our decisions, the way we may respond to them, opportunities we may give them. And it's a form of bias and it's really important to consider. And so this halo effect, even though we encounter it every day with people, really is an effect that applies to all of our life. And there's an opposite effect to this, right? So there's something called the horn effect. So once I started reading about this halo effect more in detail, I started realizing you can do the opposite, which is you can overestimate by something's appearance or smell or, you know, the way it feels or touch, you can overestimate its negative attributes. And then all of a sudden you make decisions which you unfairly judge against something. And, you know, I stumbled on this idea really just in looking at how to improve morbidity and mortality, decision-making, and obviously addressing bias, you know, it should be all the rage all the time. That's really what we should be all focused on. But certainly it's not something we, you know, focus on, I think, in medicine. So it's a really interesting concept. So, Sonny, real quick, was there like an event or something that made you look into this and uh, a complication or something where you're like, huh, why did that happen? Is there is there this bias that is affecting me? Just let us know if is there like something that led to that? So I think from a personal standpoint, certainly I'm not exempt from the halo effect or horn effect. And it certainly impacted me in terms of you know, case outcomes where you look at a case and afterwards or in retrospect, you said, you know, I, you know, we commonly refer to it as everyone, I'm sure it speaks the same way as I got tunnel vision, right? You know, I thought this was the right way to go. And I go down this path and, you know, you're like, why was I doing this? That's not even the right artery. Like, I just wasted 30 minutes of everybody's time. 
And then the tech looks at you and it's like, who is this idiot I'm scrubbed with? You know, so <laughs> I think that it's definitely affected me. I mean, undoubtedly. Where I found it, ironically, I think, I don't know, to the blame or credit of my colleagues is that when you work with other colleagues, it really came up more recently in hiring and recruiting other physicians at a pretty rapid scale and to get everybody up on the same page in terms of technique. And so what happened was, you know, I'll use Ari, for example, because, you know, if I don't throw Ari's name in this podcast, then he'll probably, he'll probably write a rap <laughs> about me or something. But, if, <laughs> you know, with Ari, if, I, if Ari calls me and says, hey, Sonny, you know, I don't know, I'm going to start embolizing these rectal arteries with, I don't know, permanent markers. And I say to Ari, well, that's, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because it has like some foam in there and it's going to work. <laughs> and, you know, Ari will convince me to do anything. He's like, he convinced me to, he convinced me to work with him. But nonetheless, I, you know, he could convince me and I could just fall into this trap. And here I am trying to like say to Ari in this set example, hey, you know, permanent markers are great. And I, and I really hear you and you have 10 to 15 years experience. You're an expert in X, Y, or Z. I know you like the way they feel and the way they touch and you like the color. And smell. You like the smell. Yeah, that's, that is a little <laughs> weird, but probably when we were all <laughs> in elementary school. And so, you know, but how do I convince them? And I can't. I realize that I, I'll struggle. Like, and we all have partners and colleagues and mentors, fellows, whatever it is. And you try and convince them and, and you can't come up with the reason why you know you can point to all these things like, oh well, evidence there's publications on this and you really just want to say you're a crazy man like what are you doing and but you got to say it to yourself right and you got to say it all the time and you got to be around people who say it to you and and willing to hear it so i think it's twofold like for my usual long-winded answers aaron it came about because undoubtedly working with other folks who are as smart if not smarter than you makes you really challenge your concepts very strongly. But undoubtedly, yes, I've had cases where I was convinced that this is the right way to do something because... Because this is how you did it in the past, right? And this is what worked in the past, right? Yeah, exactly. Ali's yeah. right on. Like, you know, I'm sure, Ali, you're like, I made a shape on this wire once and it works or... It works. Yeah, and it's simple. So every time I exchange a GJ tube, I am convinced that the... X wire is the best wire. Like, why? Why do we say those things? Like, is that true even? And, and how many GJ tubes do you really get? I feel like, right? Like, you start to blue stuff. Am I the GJ tube king of the world? Like, what is this concept? Like, right? And I don't know that that's a title I would want. <laughs> but you get, you see where I'm going. And, but the worst is, right? Here's, here's, I think, and Aaron sort of hit this on the head is like, imagine I use the wrong wire. Or something because I feel that way and it's the wrong in that particular situation and I perforate this person's stomach or, you know, something untoward happens or, you know, who knows, right? Anything could happen. And then a couple of things, right? I could not think that it was the wrong wire. So I don't learn from that mistake. No one ever told me or I never, or I never listened. There's so much that could go wrong with this whole process of what we have learned is mantra that it may not allow us to grow from it. And unfortunately, we're treating people. And the reality is, you know, whether we like it or not, the, the outcome is, is what's going to be affected. There's a person on the other end of this. And so I could tell Ari not to use permanent markers. 
it's a difficult conversation. And when something bad happens, it's the worst, right? We've all been there. Mm. I mean, we know. I mean, yeah. Theoretically, how that would you be cutting the printer marker like surgifoam? Like, is that I was just kind of in this example? I think you I'm use thinking it about- kind of like gel foam, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and make <That's> little pledges. <laughs> Funny you should say that. If you can hear this, I got a little, I got a little dry erase mark. I'm kidding. And we could just take out the middle foam and maybe <laughs> cut it up like sushi on the back of one yeah. of those blue bowls. And why don't we just do not do that at home, folks? Yeah, that's <laughs> off label. Put that out there. Yeah, <laughs> off label <laughs> use of permanent marker. <laughs> exactly. That'll be Ari's, Ari and I's next trial. I'm sure you're dealing with this too, Sonny, because you are uh, interacting with physicians who've trained at so many different places. But in my current practice, it's really heterogeneous, right? So you have people who've trained from all over the country and they do things a certain way because they were taught to do it a certain way. And they bring that bias into their into their practice, just like I bring my own bias into this practice, right? So like maybe the first five times we used a device where I trained, it went poorly. And so now everybody thinks that device is shit. Yeah. And so now I think that device is totally. shit. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. Whereas my colleague might have had a great experience with that device where he trained or in his practice and he loves that device. So when these two interactions are up against each other, meaning one person maybe has a halo effect about a certain product or device or technique, and the other person might have the horn effect about it, how do you reconcile those two? Yeah. I can't help but think of the phrase that everybody hates when you start working with someone, which is, oh, when I was here, we did it this way. You know, and then if you're of the belief that things should be protocoled in a similar institution for consistency and you know, outcomes, et cetera, then everyone's like, I don't really give a crap how you did it facility. But nobody says that, right? Everybody, you know, you you give it this weight, right? Because somebody learned it this way. And so does that person, right? They give it that weight that, okay, because I practiced with six attendings who trained at X, Y, and Z, you know, we did this way at ABC University. And so, you know, honestly, I think, Ali, it's, it's challenging. So the way I've now learned, and this is probably through the last 15 years of working with, like I said, very smart and just overall, I think, insightful physicians, is that you got to sit down and talk about the why. Okay, when is it most uncomfortable to talk about why? after a bad event, right? It's horrible, right? Everyone goes, you know, I'll give you an example, okay? I may be okay at doing a PA. Like I can probably get through one, right? So I go into a room where I hire someone who's got a fellowship and they're in there doing a PA and I say, hey, like after they've been like trying to get into the prostatic artery or frankly, it's usually trying to get into like the anterior division or something. And I'm like, you know, maybe you should try this. That's a time in which they either are gonna respond in one of two ways. They're either going to be like, yeah, this guy's got more experience than me. I'm going to try this. And frankly, everything I'm doing is not working and I want to reset. Or they're going to be like, I'm totally pissed off. I'm not in a receptive mood to hear this. I know how to get into the endurolytic artery. Who the heck are you? Right? Like, and, and so then the worst example, like I mentioned before, is afterwards when you sit in a room with your partners or you're at dinner and, or like your partner gets a phone call after hours and is like, you know, I noticed you did this perk liver biopsy in this patient. He came to the ER and I was up all night dealing with this bleeder. And uh, I don't know why you're doing perk liver biopsies in people with ascites or, you know, something like that, right? And then you're having that conversation the next day. So I find that while those are valuable conversations, like, you know, the M&M QA type after, I find that it's almost better to have these up front and create scenarios in which, okay, what would you do? You know, what's your algorithm for Let's do a simple one. Like I do this with our team. How do you get over a difficult bifurcation? Like what's, what is it? You know, I don't know. Everyone uses different things. 
And and frankly, how often do IRs even have to go over the bifurcation except for a UV? Sure. Yeah, if you're not doing a lot of PAD, definitely. Yeah. Or if you're not doing an up and over PAD, I guess. So. Yeah. You know, so when you say like, how do you handle this? It's like come up with scenarios beforehand where you know. So I take situations in which I failed. Right? I take my situation and uh, I go back to this example of, you know, we tried to review what is the single biggest impact to the length of time for a prosthetic embolization. So me and Ari did this project and it started as a QA project and ended up as probably a crappy paper, but it's one of the few that JVR accepted from me. And so it, it started out with me and Ari having this bias that type one anatomy was the worst. And that was at a time where like, I don't even know that I knew what type one anatomy was. And I, we used to say, these are freaking painful. And so we took all these random factors like age and, you know, all this stuff like iliac tortuosity and angles, you know, microcatheters. We did years experience and we did something called a regression analysis, which I have no idea, Ali, what that means. But somehow it like separates all the factors. And it turns out that like the iliac bifurcation and how quickly you could get over was the single biggest impact factor to, to doing the actual embolization of the prostatic artery. And so here I was going like, oh my God, everything I thought that was difficult is actually not. So let me review my algorithm for the one thing that, ironically, I was doing a lot of. But clearly, even if I was doing it well, like a 7 out of 10, I could probably do it a 9 out of 10 and get better at it and make an algorithm that I could go back to. It's based in some rationale. It wasn't just because somebody taught me how to get up and over the bifurcation during you know, a leg case. Because that might be different, right? Or a UFI, which the anatomy is probably invariably different in a lot of younger women. And so it's tough to look at these made-up scenarios, but I think talking amongst each other, you can try and come up with them. And that, that's such like a basic thing, you know, like getting up and over. It's such a basic thing that I think a lot of people would be reluctant or hesitant to talk about it because they're like, oh yeah, whatever. I, I, I do this and it works every time. But you know, it doesn't work every time. That's only 50% of the time it works all the time, right? Yeah, that's exactly. right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Aaron is a really important person for those of you who haven't seen that movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, uh, Sunny, would you care to, uh, to run us through your algorithm for tortuous iliacs? Yeah, there you go. I love that. So this is actually one, you know, obviously it's a podcast, so there's no pictures, but I want everyone to sort of use their mind on this. We imagine the iliac artery as this upside down, you know, like why, right? You know, who knows? What is it, like a 60 degree angle or something? And we imagine it's like easy to go from one side to the other. But in reality, right, everyone has these like candy cane iliacs or I always imagine this. When you stick the right femoral artery and your wire goes, if it looks straight and it's going into the aorta, things are probably going to work out pretty okay. But if your wire goes up and all of a sudden it's pointed towards the liver, right? So it goes up and now your right common iliac is, I call it concave, right? So it's like, also the wire is ported that way. And oftentimes you feel it, right? When you put the wire in through the needle, you're like, ah, this doesn't, it doesn't feel like every other case. It just feels a little weird. And so you step on fluoro and you're like, okay, the wire is going the other way. So all of a sudden when that happens, do you just say at that point, okay, well, I had a C2 pulled. And you know, a C2, an MPA, whatever people use to get up and over, like I use a C2, right? So it's not going to really point to the left common iliac because everything's going up to the right upper quadrant. So at that point, what do I do? This is my halo effect, right? Do I want to use my IR, you know, 
totally ADHD. I'm in a rush. I'm counting the number of seconds till I get out of the room to do who knows what. I don't even know when I do. And <laughs> but and, or and like just give me the C2. I'm gonna get up and over. Like is it, like is it, am I on some sort of like weird? Did I invent the C2? Like is that is it, is it like <laughs> Sunny C Bagua? Like no, I gotta like tell myself, dude, this isn't gonna work. You know, I gotta like. Tell the tech, hey, you know what? Open that SAS catheter. It's got a reverse curve. It's going to point the other way. But it's hard, right? Because intrinsically, it's like, let's look at all the clicks that are in the way, right? I call them clicks. You the know, clicks, it's like, yeah. yeah, these are what I call clicks or like my frustration points of like, okay, well, I got to ask for it, you know, and I kind of was listening to the music. If anybody who knows me, no one's ever going to get it as fast as I want. And that's probably an IR trait, right? We could all agree. And then, they're going to open it. Then it's got to be flushed. By that point, I've probably taken the flush syringe out of somebody's hand. And I'm like, just give me that end of the catheter while you just take this end. <laughs> right? I'm like, you know how this works, right? So I, what do I do? I just put the C2 in while I'm waiting for them to open up the sauce. And then I'm like, oh, well, this isn't working. And I'm like, of course it doesn't work. And, you know, it's funny. I have a tech you know, who scrubs with me, who came here from Turkey, who's a neurosurgeon. Great background story, not for this podcast, but nonetheless, I hired this guy because he's not practicing neurosurgery in America. And if you want to do a case with somebody who looks at everything you do as it's the first time you've ever done it, he would be like, you know, is that the way you kissed that girl the first time you took her out? Like he would criticize every little thing you do be like, you know, well, why? Like, why do you do it that way? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this guy's a fucking neurosurgeon. Like, he, he's, <laughs> he's looking at what I'm doing, thinking like, why'd you put this C2 in? You know it doesn't work. And he's right, right? And he's probably not saying that. I know he's probably thinking it. But the point is, Iliacs, like, that's a great example of like, hey, I know it's not going to work. What's the only thing that's going to work? The opposite, which is a reverse curve. And so if you use a reverse curve catheter, you are likely going to get up and over and the other is, okay, so let's say the iliac tortuosity is horrible. And now it's not only concave on the right, on the left, it's concave. So on the left side, the left iliac, you can imagine now is concave towards the spleen. So now when a wire were to go down the left side, it's actually going to go down, but then back up again as the internal mm. comes off. And we've all been there, right? Yeah. And, you know, you put a Benson or a J and it like the, the sauce flops back up in the aorta. If we, you hook the, you hit the hook to bifurcation, you put another wire in, you're like, and it keeps flopping up and down. You're like, give me a braided sauce, not this crappy catheter. And then like, it doesn't work. And you're like, of course it doesn't work. What do you mean? Like you knew it's not going to work, right? So what do you do? Do you spend 30 minutes trying to like work through getting up and over? So like I have my algorithm. So it might be like really quickly. It might be like, hook the sauce on the bifurcation, use a glide wire, then a glide cath, go back to a braided wire like an 035 Benson or J, then go to a braided catheter. If the braided catheter doesn't work, go back to the glide catheter, then a stiff glide, then a braided wire, then a braided catheter. Like there's my technique. And then maybe a sheath because I know after I did all this, I'm probably going to get kicked out. And then, you know, my staff's going to look at me again. Like, does this guy ever done PAE before? So that's my technique. Or do I just say, I'm not going to waste 30 minutes on this. I'm going to go into the right side because, oh wait, it's really easy. Like I'm already on the right and I have a sauce. I'm just going to hook the right, do the right prostatic angiogram, do the embolization, get something under my belt. And you know what? Now that I'm in the right, you know what? Maybe I form a SIM too because it's got a longer reverse curve. It will easily sit. It won't kick up. 
And even though I have that fancy transition that I just rattled off, which is probably, I don't know, probably half fake, but the point is it, it, it works for me, that transition, but with a SIM, it's going to work way better. So you, you can look at it like I gave up or I, I got smarter and I had to learn from many hours of failures to be like, oh, I learned how to get up, but I didn't really learn when to call it, when to make a transition, when to look at my own bias and be like, I have this tunnel vision and I think a glide's great, but probably not in this situation, Sonny. And so that's my iliacs. Ili you can, don't you feel the, the annoyance I've had with iliac arteries? They're like, <laughs> I dream about them. Allie. I can tell you put a lot of work into the algorithm. How often would you say you hew to the algorithm? I mean, is this something that you make and then you hope that you can follow it? When do you see yourself getting frustrated with what you've created? Yeah, I seem to get frustrated with it if I go off track. So I'll give you a great example. You put a watch, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, pelvic angiogram for any sort or a leg angiogram. And you're, you know, I put a wire in the right groin and for some unbeknownst reason, the wire goes into the right internal. God, this is great. I got my C2. I'm just going to drop my C2 in the right internal. And then I'm just going to do my PAE. This is like fantastic or whatever. You know, it could be any case, but something happens fortuitously that you think, well, this was easy. I could just take care of this first and then I'll go do this. That happens to you or me, let's say 5% of the time. So 5% of the time, something fortuitous or I appears fortuitous to me happens. And then I do that. And then when I do it, it's about 10 minutes in where I'm struggling that I realized, why didn't I not make my Waltman loop like I normally do? And there's a reason why I do that. I like to be able to point my C2 towards or away from the medial wall. But you know what? When you went in from right groin to right iliac, you can't really do that. And so I've given up the reason I even use that catheter. So I might as well, have, if that happened to me fortuitously, I should have made the adjustment. And so the problem is I find myself, like everybody, you still will find yourself in that trap. And that's where working with good colleagues is great because when that happens, they just usually like walk in the room and they smile and they go, yeah, notice you're doing the right side first. And you're like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to say anything. Thanks. I, yeah. You know, yeah. that's, the, right. th that's where having like, you know, good colleagues is not just like, saying like, great job, you know, you're doing fantastic. Well, how does your burnout feel? Like, you know, how about this? Prevent me from getting burnout by keeping me from making stupid mistakes, right? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, like having colleagues that can give you constructive criticism um, that's actually useful, you know, um, especially after the fact, after your cases is just, just invaluable. But nobody teaches you how to do that, right? Oh, no. What, give constructive criticism? Give and take, probably. <laughs> give criticism on other people's cases or um, advice about how people can do stuff better or maybe how you would approach a situation differently in a way that's not aggressive. Yeah. I mean, actually, let me ask you guys this question. Do you feel like anybody pulled you aside and said to you, hey, you know, this is the way I practice and why, whether it was in training or now, and everybody has a different way of learning, right? And taking feedback and improving themselves. Everyone. It's variable, obviously, with their personality, upbringing, et cetera. And I'm going to give it to you in this fashion and you're welcome to take it, not take it, et cetera. Like sort of an open, honest dialogue about being able to take it. And then also presenting the opportunity to say, listen, I want you to give me feedback on things. Has anyone done that? And to improve this so you don't get too biased in the way your career develops? Well, I'll, I'll tell a little story. So when I started fellowship, 
one of the attendings there, one of the elder attendings, pulled me aside after about six weeks. And he was like, Aaron, you know, there's some people that are really good, just naturally good at IR. You're not one of them. He said, you need, he said, what? you gotta, he said, look, I'm, I'm here to help you. He said, you need to go into every case like a pilot of a plane and you're going to have your checks and you're going to, you're going to go through that in your head before you start every case the way a pilot does before they take off. And, you know, I walked out of that room with my, of course my feelings hurt because I just started there and I was like, you know, I didn't know this guy very well. I kind of felt like he was being an asshole to be honest. <laughs> no, he was being really nice, Aaron, actually at the time. Of course he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, is I stepped it up, right? I was the first one to get there and was the last one to leave every day. And it took me a few months to realize that was the best advice anybody's ever given me, right? Was basically, hey man, you got to like, A, you're coming in without the right approach. Like, I don't want to say he was calling me sloppy or anything, but he was just saying like, uh, you're, you're missing steps, right? And he, he was like, I want you to think about it before you even enter the room. And I think, and it was great advice. And it just, I, you know, it always stuck with me. And the other thing that stuck with me was the fact I had this emotional response, but then I had to reflect on it. And when I reflected on it, I realized the value of the advice. So that's my advice to other people that look, just because somebody thinks, you know, it sounds like maybe they're being an asshole, they're actually really trying to help you. And, and it's all about patterns of behavior. If somebody's saying stuff like that to you every day, well, that's a whole different story. But if it's one time pulling you aside saying, hey, man, you got to step it up. Otherwise, you're not going to survive here. I think that's valuable, right? That's huge. And in a sensitive time, maybe the best way for me to say it, it's very difficult for people to accept that. And it's hard. You know, a lot of people want to feel like you have to understand, you know, my path and what's involved. But the reality is it's healthcare. And there's somebody on the other side of that, right? It always goes back to this person isn't telling you this because they think you're not doing a great job, you know, doing a vein ablation. They want to impact your entire career and how you look at everything. And to that point, Aaron, I can tell you on my second day of fellowship, I think I came home or third day of fellowship came home because my attending was standing over my shoulder. And, you know, I think it might've been like, I did three pick lines in fellowship and this was one of them is the first one. And of course it was like, you know, the second day and I had done like three or four big cases, you know, and it was like this high profile fellowship type program. You're doing all these like difficult things and it's only the second day of work. Okay. <laughs> I'm the only fellow and this attending comes in over my shoulder as I'm putting the needle in for the pick line. And you know, like you're on the inside of the, you know, you're doing a basilic vein, the arms out. You don't even know how to stand in your second. Like, where are my <laughs> fingers? Like, what right, am I doing? Right. Like, you know, how do I even hold the probe? Right. And as I'm putting the needle in and granted it's the basilic vein, right? Here he is. And he's like, over. Oh, he I don't see your needle. Like move the, no. And he's, no, he's not scrub, nothing. He's like, move the, move the probe. Don't move me near, move. And he's like yelling at me. And I'm like, and I'm sitting there. And I'm just like, oh my God, I will never survive. Like, I, I just can't. And I remember going home that night and being like, this is totally the wrong fucking specialty for me. Like, you know, I could take a lot of heat, but this was like, I just felt like an idiot. But like you, you, you step it up. You know, I remember like, sitting there being like practicing with a needle and ultrasound jelly, like for hours and hours to be like, oh yeah, this is what he was trying to say. And, and the truth is like taking that, whether it's delivered always in the best way possible, may not, that may not be possible, but taking it and improving from it's huge. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and to that point, Sonny, I mean, you're a multi-time startup founder, like, you know, fear of failure can be one of the biggest motivators, right? More so than just success. It's just like, I'm not going to fail at this, right? 
I got more of those, Aaron, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. So that's like a big thing, Ali, is, you know, discussing things, I think, with each other. Well, and to the point you were making before is it's not all about like accolades and pats on the back and stuff like that. Like that's great and everything. But the great thing that that attending did was he bookended it at the end of my fellowship. He pulled me aside again and said, Aaron, great job this year. You really stepped it up. And I'm confident that you're going to go out there and be a good IR, right? Even though I wasn't naturally a good IR, I had to work hard for it, right? So I, I appreciated that. Yeah. Well, and it's so easy these days, especially the way that our um, instructors and the people who evaluate us, they're under this pressure kind of to just let everybody get through. kind of takes a lot of courage to bring somebody aside and say, hey, you know, I see you struggling in your practice. Here's what I think you should do to improve. Um, I think it takes a lot of courage because you could have easily, you know, reported him for being a jerk or whatever. Um, And I think it's a generational thing too, right? So you both completed your fellowship a little while back. I think um, especially in light of some of the recent news events I've seen today, I'm sure teachers are more worried about giving feedback and negative feedback to students or trainees or giving feedback in a way that would be receptive to them. But I mean, you're right. At the end of the day, we're in healthcare. We're here to save people's lives and we got to be at the top of our game no matter what. Yeah. And by the way, for those of you who can't see the asterisk on the bottom of the screen because it's a podcast. When Ali said a little while back, the asterisk popped up that said, Aaron and Sonny, you guys are getting old. I think that's, oh, I, think no. Aaron, I think Aaron, that's what she was saying. So I'm just I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm just here to represent all my millennial people. Okay? I love it. I love it. No, you're, you're, you're dead right. I think that, you know, that speaks to mentorship. Like everyone these days is saying, you know, who's your mentor, right? You know, we need to mentor everybody. And we do. We need to mentor foreign medical grads, females, African-Americans and minorities. We need to mentor every type of physician. There's no one's excluded from this because the better they get, the better all of our outcomes will be cohesively as, as a specialty and honestly just, you know, medicine as a whole. But with that mentorship, it's not just the prop up, right? It's not just a, hey, this is a really great program to go to. And I know somebody who's here and, you know, IO is the future of IR and you should really sink your teeth into this. And those are personal influences and choices that we often share and sidebars to get people a leg up, but it's not oftentimes self-improvement, which comes through failure. It comes through introspection. It comes through, you know, being in a difficult place. Those are the places where improvements come from. And oftentimes complaints don't lead to it, but really looking inside and having somebody who's willing to have that awkward conversation with you is going to lead to it. And I always used to say this, and maybe it's my father telling me this, if you don't put yourself in a position where someone is willing to share something honest or critical with you, then you're probably going to overlook something. Well, okay. Um, We've strayed a little bit away from PAE, but I think this has uh, been a very valuable Screw discussion. Screw PAE, Alex. Screw PAE. It's all done. <laughs> I'd love it if we could talk a little bit more about, let's say you recognize the halo effect or the horn effect in yourself. You're like, oh man, the way I'm doing this every single time, it's not working, but I still keep doing it. Other than reaching out to the people around you to try and improve your practice, how can you kind of in and of yourself try and figure out what to do to get out of this bias? Like, let's say step one, you've recognized it. What's step two? So step one, you recognize that something's not working. So it could be during a case, it could be clinical outcome, 
It could be you're managing a complication and it can be, you know, back to PA, it could be, you know, you're struggling to get into an artery, just something very simple. And you recognize, you're like, this is not working. What do I do? Oftentimes it's just that stop, right? And stop and start over and go back to what Aaron said earlier, which is that checklist. You know, what is my checklist for doing this? Did I go off path, right? Did I make a decision that I don't normally make? And that can be with anything, right? So let's take a complication issue, right? So if I have a patient after a procedure that has groin pain and then I ignored it, you know, because I typically will say, okay, it's minor groin pain. We'll see in 24 hours. But then turns out, I don't know, they come back with an infection. Let's just make up part of a story. And so I might go back and say, well, do I normally tell them to come in 24 hours? Or do I normally, if a patient takes time to call me to say they have groin pain, I typically bring every single one of them in. It takes me five minutes to look at them. Takes me a minute to ultrasound them. My staff can probably do half of it and just tell me anyways and go, you know what? Everything looks great. But did I go off path? So I will then go back and revisit to make sure I didn't. I'm doing the same thing I do all the time. Now, let's say it's something novel. Like I'm in a situation where, you know, I can't figure out, right? Or it's like I'm running into the same scenario over and over. Like uh, my outcomes from a procedure are not as good as they were. And, you know, I feel like they were good, but now I'm doing my one month follow-up on my hemorrhoid patients and a lot of them are, are still bleeding. So why is it? So for folks on the podcast, they can't see my windows, but I draw on my windows. I carry a dry erase board with me. I write on my kids' mirrors in their bathrooms, like messages to them. I write everywhere. I write on my iPad. It's like, <laughs> I take notes. I'm a note taker. I write things down and I draw pictures. And the reason I do this is this exercise of brainstorming, you know, because in the scenario you gave me, Allie, right, I can't just call, I can't phone a friend, right? And you can't, right? right? You can't phone a friend for everything. And sometimes when you phone a friend, you call them and they're like in the middle of their own annoyance or like they just, yeah. sure. or like yeah. they don't really understand. Or you live on the West Coast and all of your friends are on the East Coast. Oh, and God. <laughs> Get yeah. that, that Oh, guy. man. Yeah, you gotta let those, you gotta let Not those that go, that's huh? ever happened to me. No, you call them and it's like two in the morning and you're like, I can't sleep, right, Al? You're like, I can't sleep because yeah. of this case. And they're like, I'm sleeping. Like it's yeah. two in the morning here. So I I think that we've all seen movies. This is like a cheesy story. I can't remember saying this, but we've all seen movies where like, you know, the, the lead character like hits this moment in a movie where they're like by themselves and they're they're walking in the rain and like, you know, smoking cigarettes on the way to a bar and uh, they get this like epiphany, right? They're usually rapidly going through in their mind thoughts, probably me and maybe some sort of psychopathic way. But the point is I'm going through ideas all the time and trying to write them down and be like, hey, and then compartmentalize them and put them in categories and figure it out. So I'll use an example from PA. I cannot tell you how many wires I have used in the last 15 years. It's got to be over 100. And I mean every version of a wire that's ever come out in thickness, stiffness, torqueability, pushability, you name it. And every manufacturer and tried all sorts of things. And then one day, you know, I realized that I make this shape on a wire to get into an artery. Like it's a C, right? Just like everyone makes like an exaggerated glide angle curve, right? Like just a simple C. I use my, there's one fingernail on my entire hand that I don't bite my fingernails. It's my left thumb so that I can always shape a wire. It's like the only <laughs> bite this fingernail. Oh, it's your shiv fingernail, right? Yeah, it's yeah. my shiv fingernail. Yeah, oh, it's right. really good. And by the way, one time I did see, go outside, <laughs> I did get captured by the halo effect. And while watching the horrible New York Jets play a football game, I like bit my fingernail. Oh. And when I got to work on Monday, I was so pissed at myself. Like, for two reasons. One, why am I a New York Jets fan? And two, why do I bite my fingernails? <laughs> Disgusting. So, okay. So 
back to the story, I make a C on every case. Like we all do, right? Like, oh yeah, drop the wire out. It'll get into the uterine or left hepatic or whatever. We all do the same. It's amazing, right? Everyone's shape is the same, right? There's a little bit of like, do you make the arc of the radius closer to the tip, a little further back, right? And that usually frustrates people because they don't understand why things like flop in and out because it really has to do with the arc. I learned that whole concept of the arc of the radius from an engineer at one of the companies. So one day I realized, well, my wire's always going in this direction and everyone has like these, like there's a more expensive wire and a more expensive wire and like a, you know, one that has, it's, it's blue colored. Like, this is amazing. Like some come packaged with the microcatheter. Like, I'm like, this is great. And then I realized none of this is helping me. This doesn't make any sense. So, you know, that concept of like, okay, a C2 doesn't work and then use a reverse curve. So what I said was, hey, well, it's just, instead of having a C, just like, do, do you know, make what I call now an S, which is a secondary curve. So if you have a, a C at the distal aspect of the wire, then you go back to where the curve first starts and you just bend the wire the other way. So now when the wire comes out of the end of the catheter, when you leave just the C out, the microcatheter is actually going to point to the opposite wall because that's where the wire is inside the catheter. And the wire that's out is still going to be the same shape you had before. And the irony is it does exactly the opposite. So I have this saying that when something doesn't work, if you do anything that's the opposite, you have a highlight of success because whatever you're doing is not working. And so this pause and then go, I got to change gears here. It's a hard thing. It's one of the hardest. And I've had partners, trust me, one of my partners, Rachel has told me this before. She goes, years ago when she first joined my practice, I was like, you know, seven years ago now or six years ago, was like, you know, maybe you want to try something else. And I'm like, well, why? This, I've gotten it to work with this. Like, this works. It's like, maybe you want to try something else. And like, you hear it once and you're like, truthfully, this is how we all are, right? You hear it once and I'm like, I've done thousand fucking PAEs. You're telling me this wire doesn't work. And then like, I won't say that out loud, of course, albeit I just said it on the podcast. So hopefully she doesn't listen to the back table. <laughs> but the point is then like a week later, or like I'm sitting there and I'm like having the same struggle. And I'm like, it's like that voice is like, you got to try something else. Like you, you got to stop and go back to the drawing board, whether it's your notes, whether it's previous conversations and think about it. And it's hard. It has to be your own idea, though, right? If somebody came and told you oh, to try something totally. else, that probably yeah. wouldn't go over well with anyone. Oh, God, you're right. totally right. I mean, I, so that's one thing I think you give up. I think this is critical to being a better surgeon or an operator is you have to give up as you get older. The concept that we have, which of course I have, I'm like everybody else, right? Like we all feel like as we get older, we get more fixed in our ways. And I've done this more and more times, but you have to give up the concept of like, if someone walks into the room with me to this day and they say, hey, do you think we should try this? I will look at the clock. I will set a timer on what I'm doing. And I will say, if this doesn't work in two minutes, I'm going to give that a shot. I used to be the type of person that said, oh, that doesn't work for this reason. And that's wrong, right? Because then I dismiss their advice, immediately assume that what I know is probably better even if what I do know is better, and even if what I know is going to work, and it, let's say it even does work, still, I still should, I could probably learn from that, right? I could probably take that. And, I mean, there's a degree of stubbornness I think I probably have, which may be extreme. Like, you know, Alex Puitapa, my partner the other day said to me, like, we're great, great case. Like, we go up and over for a case. Actually, it was a hemorrhoid case, and it was difficult to get up and over to do like a middle rectal embolization. And we got to a point where we got the glide catheter in the left hypogastric. 
And what happened was we made the decision, like, this isn't going to be stable. Let's change to a sheath. And like, then let's put a braided catheter through the sheath and just do the case with the micro. It's going to be easier. We're, gonna, we're not going to kick ourselves. So that's what we did. We actually did the right thing, which is what we thought. And it worked out. Everything's great. So you would think like we just high five, pull everything out and like, oh, yeah, like everything worked well, right? Nope, not in our practice. You know what we do? We pull the base catheter out. I pull the sheath back over to the other side. I put a glide catheter back over and I try and get the micro to go into the middle rectal artery. And he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, let's just see if it would have worked. And you know, the truth is it would have worked, but it didn't serve me any advantage to be correct, right? Being right doesn't matter. What the whole point of that was like, so what it would have worked? Like, great, you're great on this day and this moment. Like you can hit a home run with a full moon on a Tuesday when you're on ESPN. But if you can't do that every week, no one cares. And certainly your patients don't care. And so I think, you know, that might be an extreme example because we're a little crazy minded, but I think that we have to learn to pause and try and, and experiment, but really be critical of ourselves. Well, along those lines, I think we're all a little bit superstitious too, right? I mean, I know I am, you know, it might be, don't say this about a case or don't talk about that before a case or, you know, don't say that, oh, that went smooth. Things like that, that just, they drive me crazy. I'm like, why do I think this way when it has zero effect on the results of the case, right? You're exactly right. One of my texts used to never open the beads before a UFE or a prostate or a hemorrhoid. And I would look at them and I go, are you just saying that the only reason I get into the artery is because you haven't opened the beads? Have we minimized our, our technique to all luck, right? I mean, there's a reason to do it, right? You know, peripheral arterial stenting or something, right? You know, where you're sizing the artery and things can happen, et cetera. But in, in other situations, we do. We have our, our bias. But like you said, like, you feel lucky. Things are going to affect your, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, totally. But luck favors the prepared, right? Isn't that the saying? <laughs> it is true. It is true. And you're sort of getting back to one of these things I think more recently has really come about as a specialty and where I think, you know, we talk about the halo effect, two things I think are important is like, let's look at devices, right? And now let me tell you a quick story. This is a, this is a good one, I think. And it's, it's a more effect, I think, the horn effect, right? You, for a long time, everybody's doing biopsies with these, you know, Tenmo type needles, right? So spring loaded, you put them out slowly, you watch your, you know, needle go out. And, you know, it's, it's kind of rewarding, right? You're like, I can watch this thing go out and I know it's going to be in the right spot. Most people might use it for thyroids, right? If they're not doing an FNA, but they're like, hey, I need a real core on a high risk area that bleeds. I'm going to try and use this because I don't want to go too far, right? So you use like a 10 most down there. Then as years have come on, there have been improvements in biopsy devices, which we've seen with respect to getting better samples from, right? Spring-loaded gun devices, right? So triaxial kind of things where the they're- barred. Yeah, you name it. And they give great samples, right? Right. No one will doubt. They're like French fries. You know, they look amazing. They are. And I think at one point, many years ago, someone used to carry around a potato and like stick this potato with the gun and and it's great. And I, and by the way, that's a way where you could like you could see something where someone comes in, a rep, or it's packaged nice, or they show it to you, or like, you know, I don't know, some IR who's like really famous who comes up with a hashtag online says, Oh yeah, this is the French fry device. And now everyone loves it, right? Like this is it's like my biggest fear. I hate that crap. So what do you do, right? You feel like I'm going to use this device because it's better. You know, it gives a better sample. My patient won't have to come back. Like you convince yourself it's better, okay? So what do you do, right? The rep shows you how to use the device. And let's say you're like, you call your friend. You know, I call Allie. At, so like I have to call, I have to wait till like 10 a.m. to call her because she's on the <laughs> West Coast. 
So that's kind of frustrating because I get up at five. So I'm like, I've been up like half the day. I'm like, when's this chick getting up? I mean, come on, Allie. I know, I know there's a baby in the background, but geez, no. So I think, you know, like, yeah. So I think that like, you know, I, I call her and she's like, yeah, I've been using it. It was a great course. I love that. I use, actually, that's the only device I use. So I have a friend and a colleague who's used a device like this. Okay. First time. Goes in, uh, uses the device. And there's some intricacies of this device, right? Like maybe I'm going to make up part of it. Some may be true, some may be not. It doesn't really matter. But the outer cannula has a different length than the biopsy gun, or they are not packaged together. Or, I mean, fuck it. Somebody opens it, just gives you the wrong one. It doesn't matter. But because you don't have a check and balance for this, because you're not used to it, and because Allie just said, it's great, I love it, thanks for calling me, got to run to work, I got a case at 8 o'clock, and you know, I got to drop off my kid, and I got to make dinner. You know, She gave me her feedback, but you know, it wasn't like, hey, Sonny, when you use it, I've used it a hundred times. It worked 99. One time I had an issue. This was the issue. Let's talk about your case. Let's figure out, well, let's plan appropriately. It's your first time using it. That's a discussion you have when you treat somebody's mother, which you should have every time. But in this situation, what do you do? Like everybody, and I don't care who you are listening to this podcast, you're all guilty because I'm guilty. And so because of that reason, you're all guilty. So here's the deal. A colleague of mine, and this has certainly happened to me, you put the cannula in, you, you put the gun in, you, your outer cannula is in the right spot, the ultrasound, it's like a four centimeter mass or whatever the heck it is. And you, you go to put the gun in. But of course, when you put the gun in, by the time you fire, it's too late, right? Like you got the French fry in your hand. And unfortunately with the French fry, you get the piece of like a mesenteric artery. And, you know, now the patient's bleeding. And unfortunately, you know, an 18 gauge biopsy through a mesenteric artery usually doesn't end well. And Whatever happens in this situation, the outcome is such that the patient lives, but it's a disaster for you because you've got to deal with it mentally and the patient's got a prolonged stay. Patient dies. And, you know, you, of course, go into a hole like you should and feel like, I can't believe I even use this device. I hate this device. I hate this company. I will never use a spring-loaded device again. I will never take a device from this tech again. In fact, I will always ask the tech to show it to me. And you know what? Screw that. I'm not even going to ask the tech. I'm going to open the device myself, put it on the table, and then I'm going to like flush it myself. Like, to what end are you going to be a victim of this like quote unquote horn effect, right? Are you going to, and that's where the line comes in where everyone loves to say like, I'm not going to change my practice based on one good outcome or bad outcome. That's crap. Everybody says it and everybody does it. They all say it, but they all do it. But so the only way to recognize it is to speak about it and say, hey, this happened to me because of this device. I'm going to break down the 12 steps of getting on an airplane, right? Boarding all the zones and checking the number of passengers on the plane, and, you know, making sure that the plane has been fueled and serviced and you know, seatbelts are locked and everybody's trade tables are up. You, obviously, I fly a lot. And so the point is, you're going to do that and then you're going to figure out the step in which something went wrong and then figure out, is it the device? Is it the rep? Is it you? Is it the person you called for the advice? Is it that you rushed? Maybe I called Allie at the wrong time. But truthfully, that happens, right? I've called people for advice. And when I call them, I mean, Aaron, you know my schedule. It's like running you know, this company and open up six centers in six months. And I get seven docs and I'm doing 15 embolizations a week. And then I call somebody at like 5 p.m., which is the worst time to call somebody unless they have a long car ride. And they're like, I'm trying to get my kid from soccer. I just got out of work. I'm getting a call from the hospital about my last case. I'm also on call. And like, by the way, like, I don't really want to talk to you right now. And when they give you advice, it's probably not great. So 
if you go through the checklist properly after the fact and dissect the problem, then you will minimize the risk of you being subject to either of these effects. And it's, it's hard to do on both ends. Nobody does it when you're successful. And when you fail, it's a real hard thing to accept. So on both ends of the spectrum, this fancy new device that came out that Aaron Fritz is amazing at using some liquid embolic that delivers radiation to the testicle that makes you more potent than any person in the world and also cures diabetes and sleep apnea along the way. Aaron can do it because Aaron has his checklist. And then, you know, someone shows me this device and I'm like, well, I want to be like Mike, right? I want to be just like Mike. Everyone wants to be like Mike. So we become a victim of this all the time. And so if I don't stop myself on either ends of the spectrum and recreate a checklist, like you just said before, I love that. I mean, that whole airline industry is why we have our timeout procedure, right? It's crew resource management. That's the only reason we do timeouts in the operating room is adoption from the airline industry. And so that mindset has to be said out loud, reiterated. That's the key piece, I think, about devices. Because with devices... We, as a specialty, are at such high risk for having not just complications, poor outcomes, you know, variability in outcomes. And that's like one of my biggest pet peeves of how the halo and horn effect can really drive you nuts. Isn't that why Twitter is so dangerous, right? Like you see this awesome case posted and you're like, oh, I could do, I could totally do that. And then, you know, it's not, it's different, right? Oh, I have the worst, what I call Twitter anxiety. I see people post stuff. <laughs> I think I just did it yesterday, and I apologize to this guy on the podcast right now. I won't say his name. He did a case. He didn't even post the case, probably because it was like, who cares? You know, the rep took a picture of him with this device and said, oh, this device worked great in this case. There's no teaching, right? There's no value that this rep offered. There's no value that the device truthfully probably offered. Maybe it did. But even if it did, it wasn't conveyed. It wasn't questioned. It wasn't proven. He couldn't even hold to a goddamn Twitter standard. And then, of course, he tagged the doctor. The doctor retweets it. So I just wrote a simple tweet back like, hey, that looks awesome. Like, was there something great about this device in this particular case? Turns out the particular case was like a routine whatever, but it just starts this cycle. Yeah. Right. Why is that tweet worthy? I mean, that's the bone I have to pick with like, you know, somebody's got the box of the brand new, you know, shiny filter retrieval set. And it's like, hey, we're at hospital so-and-so and Dr. So-and-so just used our device. It It's really just an ad, but like that's the way it comes across. So now I see your profile as an ad for that device. Totally. And there are people on Twitter that are, as you know, are calling these people out, whether it's a company or a physician or whatnot, not that I endorse it or I'm affiliated with it or whatnot. The truth, I'm not, in case anybody's wondering. I just do it myself. But I, I think that there is a lot of truth to that. And then there's a lot of truth to the fact that people who think that they don't have a conflict of interest and they say that, they're completely wrong. I went to a talk that I believe, and I may be misquoting, but I believe that it was Mike Jaff gave this a talk many years ago where, you know, Mike has like a million disclosures. Like I'm a consultant for like Abbott, Boston, Medtronic, and then like Huggies diapers. Like it seems like Mike Jaff has helped like the core lab on how to develop absorption of diapers. Like the guy's amazing. He's smart. He's connected. He's done everything. He really has. And when he shows his slide, he must feel like people look at him. I'm just, of course, 
I'm projecting here. And it's none of this is discussed with Mike, but I'm using him as an example because I have a lot of respect for him and what he's developed and worked on throughout his career. And I have to put up slides like that too that say I've taken consultant money from a lot of companies in developing clinical trials and devices. Here's the reality. When he gave one of his talks and I was there and he said, well, you know, one of the conflict of interest that I should talk about that I never talk about is I published on X or I was involved in the development of Y and it was individual, like his own IP and his own ideas. And those are conflicts. Those core concepts that we believe in are true conflicts of interest. When you feel like you're doing something the only way that's right or the right way, you have to realize that you are now a victim of that halo effect. You are literally saying like, I do it this way and that's the way to do it. And there's no other way to do it. And I preach it and that's it. And we all do that. And I've been a victim of it over and over and over. And you know, what I'm trying to do, especially in building a team and running stream, you know, the meeting where we're trying to teach people like, hey, these are difficult and and new cases that are coming up and new opportunities for our entire specialty to jump on board with. Don't just jump on board with this concept of like, hey, easy, big patient target, reimburses, does well. That is going to take you to go, oh, well, I could just use the device I got on the shelf. I could make it work because I know how to get into a, a geniculate artery, but it's really a genicular because I think it was geniculate. You know, that's a shout out to Bob Vogel's name. And so like <laughs> the thing is, you know, you can, you can, those actually, those are my fears. I get, I get this anxiety when people put this stuff on Twitter or they, they go out and they just do this stuff. And it's definitely a fear of mine. Well, uh, just a shout out to Ali's prior episode with Mina Macri on conflicts of interest. Those guys delved into that before, and and this is probably a great place to wrap it up. But it's something that we are always trying to walk the line on with Backtable, because as you guys know, and there, there might be a sponsor on this episode, is we, in order to put out medical education content, we need to sustain that with some financial sponsorship, and so that's why we take sponsors. But you you do have to walk a line, you know. You have to disclose, hey, we're sponsored by so and so, and I think that's the key thing. It's just like as long as you're not pushing a product, and that's that's where some of these Twitter posts and LinkedIn posts get kind of annoying because it's really just like a full on ad. There's no like you were saying something. There's no educational content behind it. Oh no, I mean if you're posing with a device and you don't look like a supermodel or whatever. I, I don't know why the hell you're doing I mean, it's the truth. I mean, people can hate me for it, for saying it out loud, and now it's recorded forever, is that just don't do it. And I tell people, like, is that what your value is? Listen, I have spoken on the podium at Boston, Abbott, Terumo, Medtronic, Daskal Solutions, Teleflex. I can roll off every company that I have given talks and received an honorarium that they frankly have to pay me just because they have to. And I've either given to institution, myself, now my company, other doctors who've run training courses, but do it in the form of education, advancement, training. There's got to be value around it. If you're doing it based for other reasons, that's great. But then it's just a business, right? And it's like you going out there and saying like, hey, we got Backtable. Backtable has value. We have sweatshirts. We have, you know, sunglasses. We got this. By the way, you know, I have like, I have a few of them and I'm never giving them back. But that's, it's it's a business that provides an incredible value, right? But it also gives you the free reign to also market in a different way. In medicine, that's not the case. In medicine, we are not just the business to say, I put a permanent marker in somebody's rectal artery. So everybody should use this permanent marker. Hashtag marker out, like whatever the hell the stupid term is of the day. Don't do it. Pause yourself and say, 
I'm going to put this case up because I was faced with a unique challenge, whether it was anatomy, whether it was non-target, whether it was a dissection of a femoral artery, whatever the case may be, and say, I chose to use this because it offered me an advantage, or I don't care if you put it out there and say, this, this device company gives me the best customer support ever. That's value, actually. There's a value to them. The rep shows up with trunk stock every case because he knows I might burn through 17 coils and he wants to make sure I don't have the wrong coil. By the way, that single value is way better to say about a Medtronic or a Boston or an Argonne or anybody because that's real value. But lying to my face and saying that this coil is different than this coil because it deployed and it cost 10 times the cost and it was so incredibly soft, that's a load of crap. And I know a little bit about coils. I'm just saying. Just keep it real, and I think it'll keep our field a little bit respectful. The disclosure, Aaron, I love that episode, by the way. A lot of it is legal, right? You just got to do it. It's the right thing to do. But the lack of disclosure of where the value is, that to me is where it's the responsibility of everybody, especially the folks who are not taking funding from advice companies, but they just want to like show it off. And I think that's, that's important. And our specialty will advance all of these novel things if we're cautious with all of these things. Uh, that was good full circle back to the marker embolization. Um, you like So let's, let's put a pin in it, yeah. Let's put a pin in it. When is that paper going to come out, by the way, about the permanent marker embolization? I'll look yeah. forward to it. <laughs> I am going to put it together as these, hopefully we'll get the Sentinel Abstract of the Year Award at JVIR for most foolish submission of the year. They should probably give that award out, most foolish paper. I wish that was a thing, yeah. Most ridiculous abstract. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably get it. Hey, listen, yeah, I appreciate you guys. Yeah, thanks, man. Allie, thanks for, for hosting, and until um, next time. Allie hosted this along with Aaron, and it's my <laughs> first time doing a podcast with Allie. But not only has she done this podcast, you know, uh, on a Sunday after, or well, Saturday afternoon, my weekends get blended, with a child in hand and doing this, <laughs> I find that the most remarkable thing. And honestly, it is the most impressive. I will tell you, there are things I know I am good at, and there are things I know that I am definitely not good at. And I can multitask three kids and many jobs. But for you to be on a recording and do this and carry a conversation <laughs> like this, that makes a podcast better than any other. I can tell you that. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry about the distraction about halfway through my babysitter left. So, you know. That's how that goes. <laughs> she you got to pay her more. You got to pay her more, Al. You got to pay her I know, more. right? No, um, no. I really appreciate you being on the show. I uh, heard your talk at Stream, and I thought it would just be such a great topic to discuss, especially with folks kind of um, in my situation who are just trying to refine their technique, grow upon what they've built and fellowship, and just trying to become better IRs. That's great. I really appreciate you guys inviting me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. 
Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Thank you.